0: You're listening to the Contemplative Light Podcast with your host,
1: Clint Sabom. Hey Chris, good to have you back on our podcast. Uh, great to be here, Clint. Thanks for having me. Sure, yeah. I was, I was hoping today maybe we could talk a little bit about Buddhism and maybe how Buddhism has influenced your meditation practice and your meditation teachings. Oh, well. Sure.
0: Um, <laughs> well, Buddhism has uh, greatly influenced my meditation practice and the way I teach. Uh, I think of myself primarily as a, as a practitioner of the Dharma, uh, more so than a Buddhist these days, and I'll uh, get to why I differentiate the two in a, in a minute. But um, the a practitioner of the Dharma, I think, um, is somebody who practices the teachings that the Buddha left or gave us um, without a religious affiliation, so to speak. Um, although I've, I've studied and trained in monasteries uh, quite a bit. Um, yeah, I am uh, trying to get away from the uh, the notions of dogma. uh, Sure.
1: Well, Buddhism's not extremely dogmatic by nature. I mean, it doesn't seem like it. I mean, I know that there are things and threads in different parts of Asia, like Pure Land Buddhism and things where there's a bit more of a worship or devotional aspect. But for the most part, it seems like the Buddhism that gets popular with Westerners and with maybe countries where buddhism is not indigenous or doesn't have a long history it's really not the dogmatic aspects that no the general public knows yeah fortunately that's that's true
0: i think it's particularly as it's coming to the west it's a uh, uh, shedding a lot of the dogma that weighted it down uh, when it was uh, growing up in asia uh, for sure Not that there's anything wrong with uh, the Buddhisms in Asia either. Uh, It's all the same. Uh, It all stems from the same beautiful teachings and insights of the man, Gotama Siddhartha Buddha. Uh, Yeah. Yeah. And uh, that's the practices that that I do and teach and that I I really have grown up with. Uh, I did study Hinduism for a few years, but I, I actually don't really remember that much <laughs> of, of the, at least the uh, mythologies and things like that. I, I did take some of those practices with me and cultivate them for a while. Um, but uh, primarily I'm doing a, a Buddhist practice called Dzogchen, uh, which is the practice of uh, embracing the present moment as completely as possible. Um, but the Four Noble Truths that the Buddha gave uh, at his first sermon are deeply, deeply informing my spiritual growth and teaching and practice uh, these days. For about the past year, I would say, I've really uh, made the Four Noble Truths a study, what's come to be known as the Four Noble Truths.
1: Great. Well, let's talk about the Four Noble Truths. And my only request is that you don't mention or give some recap of the story of the Buddha, because... I personally have heard that so many times. I just check out.
0: I won't put you to <laughs>
1: sleep, don't worry. <laughs> so life is suffering or something? Life is hard? What what it starts it starts off on a on a down note.
0: Yeah, no, sure. Um so well, I'll just uh give the four noble truths generally as they're presented, uh in Buddhist Orthodoxy and that uh is that the first is life contains suffering, or dukkha. Uh, Suffering arises because of the way we we react to our environment. And that's uh, samudhya, the Sanskrit word, or the Pali word, samudhya. We can see suffering by releasing our emotional reactions. And we can cultivate a life uh, or a path which allows us to live free from our emotional reactions. That's marga, marga. So that's the Four Noble Truths as as they're presented, generally. That's the DNA, pretty much, of all Buddhism. Every, uh, every uh, Buddhist group uh, contains uh, some version of the Four Noble Truths, uh, Zen, Tibetan Buddhism, Chinese Buddhism. Buddhism in Sri Lanka and Thailand—they all have this at their core teachings. Even though, after that, they could vary greatly. Like the the Buddhism in Tibet varies, you know, really in many many ways from the Buddhism that comes out of China and so forth. But they all carry the Four Noble Truths. Now a couple of some really great teachers that I'm very intrigued with, primarily uh, Stephen Batchelor, has uh, broken down these Four Noble Truths into uh, four tasks. And this is how it's informing my practice today and how I'm, I'm beginning to approach it as a teacher as well. So, when the Buddha gave this first sermon... Uh, he was asked, what is dukkha, and the, which is suffering, uh, traditionally trans, uh, translated as suffering. But the Buddha actually didn't say that. He was a little more uh, precise with his language. He said, dukkha is birth, dukkha is aging, dukkha is sickness, dukkha is death. Not getting what one wants is dukkha, getting what one doesn't want is dukkha. Being separated from those who are dear is dukkha, not being close to those who are dear is dukkha. So really, dukkha, and when you read it like that, it it really means dukkha is life, right? I mean, earth is life, sickness is life, that's life, we get sick, right? We're all going to die, that's a part of life. Not getting what one wants is, is also a part of life, and so forth. So the first, the first of these four, become uh, becomes a task or a calling to embrace life, embrace the present moment. So it doesn't really mean life is suffering as a metaphysical belief claim. It it means suffering is a part of life, and we need to be able to embrace the entire life itself, every aspect, including the suffering, but also the joy and the bliss and the love and and all of that. But the suffering uh, is very important to, to get to know that suffering.
1: So what exactly causes this suffering?
0: This suffering, and that's the second of the four uh, truths, if you will. Uh, I prefer not to use the word truth, and I can talk a little bit about that later, but But uh, so the four, (laughs) the four tasks, if you will, uh, we suffer due to our emotional reactions to our environment. And we're emotional creatures as humans. Every time we encounter anything, we have what's called a feeling tone. Every encounter with uh, the environment uh, elicits a feeling tone. A
1: feeling tone?
0: Yeah, like... Yeah, the way our body, the way our emotions respond to the present moment, the way our thoughts respond, uh that all comes from this feeling tone from everything we look at or encounter in our environment. That's that's what that's one of the qualities which uh allows for consciousness or how consciousness is defined by this feeling tone that arises from a nervous system encountering an environment. Okay. Yeah. So we interpret that feeling tone with either attraction, aversion, or indifference. In every moment, we're we're having this emotional response or reaction to the present moment with either attraction, aversion, or indifference. Now, when that attraction becomes an obsession or when that aversion becomes something we need to push away we, we create an emotional reaction, and that, that's what causes our suffering. When we can't embrace the present moment, we can't embrace the dukkha of the present moment, uh, we react emotionally, and that, that's what gives rise to our suffering.
1: So is the indifference the optimal one? Is that the balance point?
0: Well, no, that's funny, because it, one might think that at first, but indifference is just as dangerous as attraction and aversion. It, the reason is is because indifference gives rise to prejudice and preference, you know, but particularly prejudice, any kind of racism, objectification of other, other human beings to give rise to war, slavery, uh, and so forth. All of those illnesses that, were, that are, have been born into the human race uh, came up through indifference. So, so that needs we need to be on guard about indifference too, and we can feel indifference in ourselves uh, when we feel bored. Indifference gives rise to boredom. So, if if you get bored during a meditation practice, you can look right at what that boredom feels like and and really get to know it and embrace it uh, by looking at it and embracing it in such a way. It passes very, very passes through
1: like clouds through mind like the sky. <laughs> gotcha. So, so you're talking yeah. about an indifference that's an indifference where we lose our sense of sensitivity, not like a detachment yeah. where there's still uh, sensitivity and consciousness and presence, but an indifference where it's maybe kind of a blocked or numb indifference.
0: Yes. And actually if, if one has enough capacity in their meditation practice, when boredom arises or indifference arises in the practice, if that meditator can look at the feeling of boredom and make it an object, equanimity arises from that. It, it, it transmutates the, the, the uh, indifference into equanimity. So, and that's an actual practice that's done uh, in some uh, meditation schools. So that's a wonderful transformation practice and that's one of the the great gifts of of the the four tasks here the four noble truths is being able to watch these emotions and then we get to the third we we see we see the emotional reaction to the feeling tone then we get to the third task which is watching that watching that emotional reaction fade away without without reacting to it without punching somebody when we get angry, for example, or without yelling at somebody. We can we can see that emotion arise in our awareness. That's the arising of the dukkha, and then we can witness it passing through our without without reacting to it. And that's the third task of the four is is recognizing that we cease suffering by releasing our emotional reaction. Now it, that that the word releasing is very important because it's not re- a repression. We're not pushing the emotional reactions away, and we're, and we're not indulging in them. So we just let we rest in the experience of the arising of whatever it is—anger, attraction, aversion, indifference. We watch it pass through our mind, and then we let it go, and and it self liberates. Is the uh, one of the great uh, translations of that process. It said the emotion, the emotional reaction, self-liberates. Beautiful uh, phrase there. And then the fourth of the four is is we begin to cultivate a life uh, which allows us to live uh, free from reactivity. That's the eightfold path, what, what the Buddha outlined. And those are uh, complete understanding, complete intention complete speech, complete action, complete livelihood, complete attention, complete concentration, and complete meditation. So that's the Eightfold Path.
1: Okay. That's interesting that you use the word complete as the prefix. I originally yes. heard it, I think, with the word right, like right action, yeah. right speech, et cetera.
0: Yeah, that's the traditional way it's been given to the West, is right. But again, that, that gives rise to the issue of right versus wrong. Exactly, and yeah. And we have a different
1: kind of take on that than the East probably right. did. What What the Buddha was really teaching is the practice
0: of mindfulness, bringing mindfulness to each of these qualities of life, understanding, intention, speech, and so forth, applying applying the concept of mindfulness to those uh eight aspects of life uh, can help us live a way that we don't need to react to our emotions so frequently. And what's interesting about the Eightfold Path is that uh, it's not the end game. It's, it's just, it, none of these are the end game. It, it's a continuous path of, of practice. Once we start, once we realize that mindful understanding, mindful intention and speech and so forth do allow us to unplug from from our emotional reactions we naturally start to cultivate that path it becomes like a natural extension of the practice itself
1: so real quick how is the computer stuff doing on your end at this point in the Mm. the podcast are you having any issues i i've seen you go out a few times but i don't know if that I don't know if that'll come out in the eventual recording. Is your computer like processing this slow at all? It seems like it's going fine. Okay. Okay. You're not, you're not seeing any issues on your end really? No, no. Okay. That's good to hear. Yeah. For the folks at home listening, we're using Zencaster, which is a new audio site to record on. And, by and large, it's been pretty good for us so far, but ever now and then there's some issues. So if any Zencast or tech folks are listening, you know, get on that, guys. Uh, <laughs> t- tighten it up a little bit more. <laughs> so, yeah, you know, why, why edit this part out, right? Just go ahead. Right. And, it's, and, it's a commercial. Yeah, it's a commercial slash, uh, you know, something, maybe a customer service call. So, um, yeah, so going it through all of this is, is really good. And then, you know, now could you break down the eightfold path and, you know, you told us the topics on the eightfold path, does that subdivide and go into a lot of detail? And my other question about that, is that really even an important or something you focus on in your teaching?
0: Um, yeah. I, I give a couple of examples, and I and I kind of allow the practice to um, to manifest in other people differently. And I think that I think the eightfold path um, is a very personal at, part of the practice, and I think that that does manifest for people differently. Uh, there are ways of teaching us, you know, mindfulness. I'll, I'll give an example, like a complete speech or right speech or. Mindful speech—it's um, one of my favorites—and it's the practice of listening to the sound of your voice while you're while you're speaking, as if you were listening to somebody else talk. Now, that's kind of the unorthodox uh, teaching on on. I'll start with the practice. Uh, the practice of mindful speech or right speech—the way it's given in temples and monasteries uh, throughout the world is that right speech should be kind, uh, relevant. Um, I forget the the four qualities, but they list four uh, qualities of speaking uh, that that makes up the practice of right speech. The way I I think of it and practice it and, and teach is that I think people should listen to the sound of their voice while they're talking. For me, that's the practice of bringing mindfulness to speech. And what happens generally is that the, the speaker does begin talking more relevant to the present moment, but it doesn't allow for any sort of repression because you're not trying to live up to this ideal of what you might think right speech is according to some text or teacher but you're actually living from your own truth uh, appropriate to whatever the present moment contains. And I think, I think that applies to all eight of those aspects Um, intention, just being mindful uh, when you're behaving, feeling the inside of the body uh, when you're going through your day, Uh, complete livelihood being, you know, applying mindfulness to how you make your living, your career, um, attention, that has to do with uh, you know your cognition, being mindful of what types of things you bring your energy to, those types of things. So, so the whole Eightfold Path actually becomes a practice. Now the, the energy, the awareness that the practitioner puts into the Eightfold Path is cultivated in the meditation practice. Without, without a consistent meditation practice, it's very difficult to apply mindfulness to these aspects of life because life always throws curveballs, you know. There's always somebody who's going to cut you off on the road or somebody who's, you know, uh, going to say something that triggers us or behaves in a way that triggers us. So we have to, well, at least I strongly recommend... <laughs> Uh, uh, having a uh, consistent meditation practice as a way of cultivating awareness so that we can be more mindful in our life.